is the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard. Our mission is to train those who give spiritual counsel to others. Whatever your skill level, we offer accessible and practical advice to those whose life or work frequently leads them to spiritual conversations. Our goal is to foster a growing relational connection with and loyalty to the God of the Bible. We help people choose life-giving reactions to the warning lights on the dashboard of their lives. Our passion comes from the belief that only healthy hearts can know God deeply and follow Him fully. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard. Wherever you are on the globe, Nancy and I are honored to have you aboard. Speaking of Nancy, my beautiful bride is in the studio with me today. (laughs) Well, thank you, honey. And hello, everyone. If you're interested in going back and listening to any of the three previous seasons, it would be helpful to begin with the first episode of season one. Each podcast is a standalone topical treatment, but they are episodic, so listening out of order will leave you without some necessary foundational content. Our intention with this podcast is to keep the explanation simple and relatable, and for the most part, avoid the clinical and theological terminology. So what I did is I swapped that out for modern and easily recognizable metaphors to explain spiritual and biblical ideas, as well as coaching techniques and and approaches. Now, that doesn't mean that our content is overly simplistic or or dumbed down or, or, or unhelpful to those who are further down the road, just that it's accessible and immensely usable. No matter your familiarity with the subject, you will be able to follow along at whatever level of experience and discover new ways to talk to others about spiritual subjects. Yes, and as we enter this fourth season, we will begin to offer true standalone episodes, tackling both new content as well as returning to subjects we already addressed but feel deserve greater attention. Yes, and and it's important that uh, I make a clarification. You understand my use of some terminology uh, in all of these podcasts, you, you know, I mentioned spiritual maturity and spiritual growth and those things consistently. Some people, when they hear those terms, especially if they've gone to church all their lives, might be tended to think about attending classes or amassing uh, intellectual understanding. And, and that's not what I mean when I talk about spiritual maturity or spiritual growth. I'm talking about first-person, hands-on, experiential knowledge of God. Spiritual maturity is knowing Him. It's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And that's what I mean when I talk about spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. If the relationship is strong and growing, everything else that's necessary to life as a follower of Jesus Christ will flow from that. In fact, we want you to know that we named the podcast The Spiritual Coaching Dashboard because just like the dashboard in your car, there are warning lights in our lives. They indicate to us that we need to do some heart work with God in order to step into our full potential. We need someone more qualified and experienced to do spiritual wrenching on our souls in order to improve our performance. Our dream for you is that you would unlock your potential through a heart healthy enough to know God deeply and follow Him fully, and then to pass your experience on to others. Now, without further delay, here is today's content. In this episode of the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard, we are continuing our three-part series on God does not hate divorce as much as He hates dot, dot, dot. Or better, maybe God does not hate all divorce as much as He hates. This is number two. You're going to want to go back and pick up the first episode because today's content will build on that. It is standalone, but you're going to want to read 
or listen to the first episode because it really sets an important uh, precedent. It explains a lot of where I'm coming from and uh, what we're trying to do with this. So go back and catch episode one if you have not. This is episode two in that last episode. I made an attempt at describing domestic violence uh, for those that don't know what it is and or what it's like to be trapped in it. Uh, I make sure we understand that it is not confined to physical violence, that domestic violence isn't just a reference to physical abuse, but there are also, you know, sexual and psychological and, you know, emotional side um, to this desire to use power and intimidation to control another. While it may not make sense to you who have not experienced it, the physical aspect of DV is not the worst of it. It can be far more abusive to live with the less visible elements of domestic violence. The other aspects of it can be more cruel and painful than anything physical, and it is so much harder to prove that a heart has been misused and bruised and broken than it is to prove a bruised or broken bone. That's part of why it is more difficult, the invisible, the non-physical aspect of it. Women in particular live in this prison for so long for that very reason. It's hard to prove. It's hard to get people to believe you. Uh, they do not want to look like they, they fit the profile of a whiny wife any more than they want to be disbelieved again. And when DV is of, that's domestic violence, DV is domestic violence. When DV is of the non-physical nature, they often do not recognize it themselves as violent and abusive until it has escalated to an extreme level. If a woman grew up with a, you know, with a, a man and a woman who, who abused, with, with, with a man or men who abused their mom, uh, they may just also just assume it's, it's, it's normal. That's the way it is. That's how I have to live. Last time we studied the Bible passage, the biblical passage in which we find the God hates divorce command, or, or the common, it wasn't really a command, uh, and discovered that it was directed at husbands and not wives. We found that the real meaning was that God hates it when husbands or men are cruel to their wives by using uh, an unnecessary divorce, or any divorce really, to get rid of them and send them into a life sure to lead to disdain and danger. With this second of three articles or episodes, we will take a look at the fact that God hates divorce is not the only thing he hates or even the thing he hates the most. Um, and I, I will apologize for those who want a short answer to this issue of divorce and DV, which is a big question with many variables, uh, because what we've said thus far in the previous uh, episode uh, it's only the half of it. The God hates divorce blanket assessment is yet even more woefully inadequate, mentally lazy, lazy, biblically inaccurate, and possibly intentionally misleading, if not outright illogical. Consider this illustration. Let's say I come over to your house with an axe in my hand and I beat in your front door and I, I broke, out all, broke out several windows and then I climbed on your roof and, and chopped the hole in it. Well... Yeah, I'd be arrested, and rightly so. With or without provocation, this is, is clearly not acceptable. But wait. What if I wear a thick raincoat, waterproof boots, a red helmet with a, a long brim in the back, an oxygen mask, and arrive in a big red truck with sirens blaring and a ladder on top, and your house is on fire? 
In that case, I could do all the same things and even drag your unconscious self from your house without your consent and be labeled a hero. You'd shake my hand after the medics save you from smoke inhalation and thank me profusely, right? You see, a fireman operates under different rules by God's design, not to mention civil permissions, because of a higher law that comes into play when lives are in danger. I bet you can figure out where I'm going with this. When a woman in an abusive marriage goes to the leadership in the church, or anyone, or avoids them, or any the church leadership or anyone, due to the typical injustice and prejudice she could expect to receive. She does so precisely because a higher law is at play and she knows it. In her heart she knows, or at least hopes, that God does not expect her to live the way that she is living. Yes, under normal circumstances, divorce is not just undesirable and inadvisable and unwarranted, but wrong. It is the product of hard, unforgiving hearts. God's original intention was for two to be joined to one and to stay that way. In a perfect world, that would always be the case. But in a, in a perfect world, where relationships are hard and must be worked for, and where time and patience, communication, kindness, and selfless service to the other is required to make the union work and remain uh, undissolvable, it would be wrong. But life in this broken world is clearly not perfect and is often far more imperfect than is safe or sane for us to put up with or condone. When the level of imperfection is present, when that level of imperfection is present, a higher law kicks in which nullifies the lower law and makes keeping it not only unsafe but insanely foolish and, and unnecessary. So there is this, this higher law in a perfect world, right? God obviously wants uh, a marriage to last through all of its ups and downs. But this isn't a perfect world, and the ups and downs are often very high and very low, and sometimes those vows are protecting a woman from escaping physical danger, emotional danger, all kinds of internal wounding and bruising that is invisible on the outside, and in that imperfect world, God does not expect a woman to live that way. We discover in the, 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 the first half of the Bible called the Old Testament that God permitted divorce within the nation of Israel. Now, not under normal or healthy circumstances, but when hearts were hard, stubborn, unyielding, and harsh, and, and when ears were closed to apology, reason, and compassion. Jesus talked about it to the religious leaders of his day when they tried to use the question of divorce to find something to accuse him of. Matthew 19, 3 through 8. Some Pharisees, these were the religious leaders of the day, they came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus responds, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? These religious leaders asked. Jesus responded, Moses permitted divorce only on as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not that, but that was not what God had 
originally intended. Uh, Jesus does not avoid this issue in any way. God's original intent is abundantly clear, but so is the fact that allowances were made. Both abundantly clear. Within this framework, consider a woman trapped in abusive marriage. After all the investigation is done and her husband is shown to be both abusive and unwilling to change, showing that he is of the hard-hearted variety, she is allowed to escape through the use of divorce. That seems to do justice both to this text and the higher law that says that safety is more important than keeping a promise. If doing so will end in all manner of cruelty and abuse, if not maybe even death. The woman is not being hard-hearted when she realizes that her promise cannot be honored anymore without risking her sanity and possibly her life. A higher law has stepped in, pushed aside temporarily, the, pushing aside uh, temporarily the lower law, right? And made way for her to escape with her sanity, soul, and life intact. Now consider this from a, a different angle found in another biblical teaching. In 1 Corinthians 7, we're going uh, to use verse, about halfway through verse 12 to 16. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live, continue to live with him, he must not leave her. And if a believing woman has a husband who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, he is willing to continue living with her, he must not leave, she must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife, who isn't a believer, insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. <coughs> this section lays out why a spouse who is a Christ follower should stay married to one who is not if that one is willing. The implication of verse 17 is, with, is that um, when they were married, uh, neither of them were committed to Jesus Christ due, uh, you know, in, in his sacrifice for them and because of their belief in him. Um, some good reasons, I might add, are included there. But it also explains how to proceed if, after one or the other of them has converted, <coughs> the other who has not is no longer willing to remain married. So sometime after marriage husband or the wife has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and is now a believer, but the other is not. And they no longer wish to remain in that union and the unbeliever wants to leave. Now here's where it gets good. Not only is the believing spouse to let go of the unbelieving one who wants to leave, but this declares that their bond is broken. Their vows are null and void for the sake of peace. Other interpreters of the original Greek say, um, say that the, the believing spouse is not under bondage. That's the New American Standard 95, or is not morally bound in the Amplified Version. So the unbelieving spouse's decision to leave cuts loose the other spouse from any obligation to them. 
which of necessity suggests they're free to marry, and and they would still be, or, or they would still be morally bound and would be would have to stay single. They are not subject to moral code of marriage anymore. Hmm. Now it gets even more interesting. This directive that God saw fit to to put in the biblical canon says, in such cases, or in these or other such cases, cases. And it seems to be agreed that this is not a reference to only such cases where one spouse is a believer and one is not. The implication of the original is that of in other instances that are like this one, that are the same type. Uh, In fact, uh, Wayne Gruden, modern theologian and professor, in a new article, translates this as, in this and other similarly, similar, yeah, I can say the word, in other similarly destructive situations. So, um, where you go to get the transcript of this has the link to that article. You just go to tworivers.church slash Brave the Rapids. That's all one word. Two Rivers dot church slash Brave the Rapids. You can find the link to that article I just mentioned. It was uh, published June tenth, twenty twenty, and this is only days after that. So in such cases, okay, in such cases, it means other instances of like type where chaos or the absence or or opposite of re- uh, of relational peace occurs to the detriment of both of them. So if we circle back to cases of DV or domestic violence, we can see the obvious implications. Regardless of their confession, or or you, you may prefer to say, when one spouse acts like they have rejected God in his example, uh, and are so effectively like one who is unbeliever, the spouse is free. Uh, the variation would be that the spouse who is Perpetrating DV against the other may want to remain married, but when coupled with the higher law that we already laid out, the two together clear the way for the abused to get out and protect herself by God's permission and and no longer be bound to that relationship or the promises and is free to move on. So when you put those together, the higher law and then this... um, Exception from 1 Corinthians 7.15, where, where a believing spouse is free if the unbelieving spouse just deserts them and abandons the, the relationship and the vows. Um, and, and in any cases like that, which domestic violence is like that because there is desertion, there's abandonment, there's um, um, one has one spouse has acted against and walked away from the vows, the other half is not bound to that, and I believe that includes, okay, again, if um, the partner that wants to leave, the, the one that's abusive, right, they may be professing Christ, but they're not acting like it, and, and that's obviously not once, that's a standing situation, and it leaves the other spouse, usually the wife, in danger, Whatever that danger is, per the definition of domestic violence that we gave in uh, the first episode of this three-part series, they are free. Incidentally, Grudem lists numerous situations that may be of like kind. So that of like kind opens up the door to other circumstances, marital circumstances, where one partner is free to protect themselves and walk out and not be bound to be cut loose from the vows that they've made. 
In that article, he actually gives seven reasons. Of course, abuse uh, of, of, a, of a spouse. Two is the, about the abuse of children. Three is extreme or prolonged verbal or relational cruelty, which is the definition, part of the definition of domestic violence. Four, credible threats of serious physical harm or murder. Uh, five, incorrigible drug or alcohol addiction. I can only tell you that I have not lived this, but I have heard how horrendous that circumstance is. Um, in, in incorrigible drug or alcohol addiction, it's accompanied by, there, there's just regular lies and deceptions and thefts and, 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 and violence may, in some cases, be so destructive to the marriage that uh, it would fall into this category. Um, in, in this category of incorrigible drug or alcohol addiction, uh, um, the, the financial situation that the spouse of the addict lives with is just horrendous. It's, it's, the addict does everything they can to support their habit, and they find a way to get their hands on the money. They'll even sell off possessions and leave their spouse or maybe in their children destitute. That, that can't go on. His number six is incorrigible gambling addiction, which, which is very similar. Incorrigible addiction to pornography might also fall in this category. But I also think that this kind of addiction could be included under the meaning of sexual immorality, which we already have in Matthew 19.9, Grudem says. And then he also says this in that article, situations that are not legitimate grounds for divorce. Okay, in the midst of a secular culture where divorces are far too easy and far too common, it's good to remember that scripture does not allow divorce just because a marriage is difficult, this is Grudem speaking, or because a husband or wife is not getting along, or because one spouse wants to marry another person. We need to be reminded again of the warning of Jesus that such divorces are contrary to God's will and commonly result in what God considers to be adultery. So I am pretty sure it is not biblically accurate to say that God hates all divorce. That is not biblically true based on what I'm telling you. And, you know, don't take my word for it. You go read the passages and, and read them for yourself. Certainly, while, while God... While it is not biblically accurate to say that God hates all divorce, certainly he hates it when motivation, excuses, and reasons are selfish, evil, or cruel. His original intent for a marriage is clear. However, I do think it is accurate to say that he hates marriage that attack and diminish and batter and bruise and crush the female soul. Okay? Apart from the physical aspect, I think it's accurate to say that God hates marriage that attacks and diminishes and batters and bruises and crushes a female soul. Those two statements paint a radically different biblical picture of marriage and divorce uh, um, than the misused comment, you know, God hates all divorce, that is, that, that, that implies more than God meant by that. All right, so the statement, the two statements, I am pretty sure that God, that it's not biblically accurate to say that God hates all divorce, and it's pretty accurate, I think, to say that he does hate marriage under the circumstances that I have described. Uh, those two statements paint a radically different picture of marriage and divorce than that misused comment that implies more than it was meant to, God hates divorce. It's implied that God hates all divorce. That is not true. Now, I'll pile more biblically 
evidentiary proof on top of that right after this break. Let's take a short break so you can rest your brain. You've been used to a new episode each week as we work through our first three seasons. As we move into season four, the episodes will drop less frequently, but at least once a month. Whatever the reason and from wherever you are listening, we are so glad you have come along for the ride. That is why we are excited to invite you to help us determine some of our future content. At the close of this episode, we will tell you how you can send your questions, ideas for topics, and suggested book reviews. If this podcast is helpful, we ask that you take a moment to rate, follow, and share it on whatever platform you use to stream content, so that others can find us too. All right, let's finish today's episode of this podcast. through the book of James recently, I found some verses that apply to our conversation. I, I spent the last year rereading the same New Testament letters over and over, beginning with Romans. Uh, you know, I read all or part of the letter day after day and week after week and, until I feel I've got some of a decent grasp on its, its, its content and intent. Uh, uh, only then do I move on to the next letter rather than just reading, plowing through. Uh, and while in James, I must have read it 20 times before these verses hit me as relevant to our discussion. James 2, uh, verse 1 and then 8 through 11. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. <laughs> yeah, if you favor some over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law for the person who keeps all the law except one. He's as guilty as a person who breaks all of God's law. For the same reason, God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So this is exactly what the narrowly focused God-hates-divorced people do. Okay, They choose one command, one command, one truth, they pull it right out of its context and they pull it away from the rest of the commands and its, its, its surrounding context. They stick that command up on a pedestal, focus solely on it, and confidently forget and, or ignore the rest. Then they tell themselves they're doing good and right because their strong commitment to that one random rule they staunchly defend. But they are themselves still lawbreakers if they ignore other things that God also teaches or are important to heed, like you know, the, you know, the higher law, or they favor men over women, right? Uh, and, and they violate this, 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 this law of higher consequence when they choose to hate divorce but permit cruelty and abuse. So they're choosing one law. God does not like divorce. God hates divorce. Ignoring these other laws about cruelty and abuse and protecting those who have no defender. Interestingly, when they use it to to shut down a woman who claims to be in an abusive relationship without listening fully or performing any investigation and believe the man over her for no real reason other than that they cannot imagine him doing what she reports is happening or worse, simply because he's a man, they favor him over her. And that means they're sinning. That's what James says. They have become respecter of persons. They give honor to one person while showing disdain for another. Though they may do nothing to encourage a violation 
of this one thing that God hates, they break a pile of other laws because there are other things, higher laws, that God also or more intensely hates. They still are breaking God's law, and it is evil to do so. Now, um, let's, uh, let's read another passage from James and continue our, our, our piling on here so you realize that that one God-hates-divorce <laughs> is ripped out of not only its immediate context, but it's ripped out of the context, the greater context, of, of biblical teaching. James 2, 1 through 5 says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in a glorious Lord Christ Jesus if you favor some people, others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, or let's say the man, but you say to the, the, the poor one, let's say the woman, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? And aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? The way this teaching of James fits into the scenario I have been discussing is striking. It hardly needs explanation. Those who are laser-focused on the God-hates-divorce narrative that is ripped from its context and twisted for their purpose ignore what should never be ignored. God has a special place in his heart for the innocent, the defenseless, and those who have no voice or champion, the outsider, the foreigner, widow, orphan, the clanless, the, the slave, the accused, the poor, the needy, those without a, a tribe or, or basic means to sustain life and defend limb. There are things God hates equal to or more than divorce. In the Old Testament, we find that God hates it when those in power take advantage of those who are not. He is a God who stands up for those who cannot defend themselves and expects us to do the same. Slaves were to be cared for well um, by extending the hope that they would not always be slaves. Even animals were to be properly treated by their owners in the teachings of the, of the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament. God hates it when we take advantage of others. Even the godless court systems and laws of most lands agree with God's law that stipulates that lying is wrong and false scales are criminal and false witnesses are evil and manipulating the courts in any way through bribery and social position or, or skin color or gender or office is dishonest and immoral. God's laws written on the hearts of man dictate that we defend the innocent and the vulnerable, not the guilty and the well-lawyered. This is the very heart of the gospel. Um, we all were God's enemy, far away, separate from him, and without citizenship in heaven, and without hope or help. When God stepped into time, he put aside lower laws that di di dictated that he is a perfect God and deserves what, um, and, and what we deserve as sinful humans triggered higher laws of justice and righteousness and love and brought rescue and protection to us. God um, pushed aside the lower law of what God deserves and said that there's a higher law than that, believe it or not. And that is protecting. He put aside his deity and what that should bring to him and the respect he should have and, and, and honored a higher law. And that is the eternal soul protecting those that have no champion, which was every human being 
right, from eternal damnation. <laughs> the work of Christ, his entire life mission, reveals the heart of God to us better than any words ever could. The stronger those in position and ability to do that, the stronger are to protect the weaker, not take advantage of them. We are called to give as freely as we have received, to be redeemed and eternally safe and not help others find safety, whether for body or soul, is ungrateful and wicked. Now, let me just add here something I hate, just for the sake of, uh, just for the sake of saying it. From the discussion thus far, we can easily conclude that a woman must receive equal status, standing, and consideration in marriage abuse cases. That's what the Bible says, and that's just what good sense and civil law dictate. Favoring the husband and misquoting God um, is beyond acceptable. God does not hate divorce more than anything else. But I'll tell you what I hate almost more than anything else. My conclusion in defense of endangered women is true whether there are kids involved or not. I hate it when people say, well, there are kids in the home too, so we better do something about it. Like a woman's life is not worthy of protection as a child's life is. Like one female life in danger is not sufficient to do something about it. Think about what that communicates to women. No one would say that out loud, but many embrace this inequality in practice. It is clearly an invalid conclusion and a violation of human rights when we protect a mom, but not, or, or at least are more reluctant or slow to do it, a woman trapped in abuse that's not a mother. A mother is not of more value than a non-mother because she has children. What are we effectively saying is that the little ones are more worthy of defending, that somehow they inherently hold more value or add more value to, to the mother, to the woman, that they are more abused or, or, or more worthy of protection. I hate that. Dare I say that I believe God hates that also. I hate it every time the culture of church fails to defend a woman. I hate it as much as I hate it when either of them try to make men more feminine, more palpable, less rough, less unpredictable, less adventurous, or less or more of anything that is not true masculinity. The statement I am making is not attack on my own gender. My point is that treating a woman caught in abusive marriage with less protection, rights, belief, and respect than we do the man is reprehensible. Treating her as if she is less valuable than her children is just indefensible. I hate it when a woman gets up the courage to reach out and ask for help, and her greatest fear, that she will not be believed or helped, are realized, and her situation and inner health deteriorates even more because of it. Okay, what, what, what I mean by that, <clears throat> which I don't have in my notes here, is that if that husband finds out, that she went and told somebody about the situation. Her situation is going to be much worse. If she's sent back to it and he finds out. Oh boy. Not only is that worse for her. But man. That holds the person that sent her back there in higher judgment. Unless you have lived it. You will never understand what it takes for a woman trapped in domestic violence to tell someone. And I think. Oh, gosh. I'm so sorry that this is true. I think it's even harder in many churches. 
On the next episode of the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard, I will unpack the prickly issue of perceived abuse as opposed to real abuse and how we approach a woman's claim of abuse at our church. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you heard something that got your attention, whether it be for your own relationship with God or for coaching others, do not waste the divine nudge. Be sure to take the time to think through how God would have you work the new thought into your life and practice. If you do spiritual coaching, either formally or informally, remember that it is hard to lead where you have never been. We firmly believe that God will exchange the wounding of the past for the wellness of the future. A transformation that frees us to be wholeheartedly available to Him and those near us. As we walk into that healing, we gain the humble confidence and godly credibility needed to step unrestricted into the life and impact God has for us. And when we experience that for ourselves, it gives us a compelling story from which to call others to experience the same. We pray that God uses the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard to inform and transform your life before it reaches another. If you would like to submit a question or topic for a future episode of our podcast, here as promised is the contact information. The email address is carry at two rivers.church or text at SC Dashboard from the social media platform of your choice. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Spiritual Coaching Dashboard.